turn to the book of James with me. Um, last week, we introduced the book. We kind of looked at the author and when it was written and those kinds of things. And this morning, we want to get into, uh, into the book proper and see, see the lessons that are here. As we mentioned last week, the book of James is not predominantly, it's not a theology book. It isn't like many other of the epistles where there is doctrine and theology being laid out and discussed in detail. Rather, the book of James is the practical application of that doctrine. This is how it bears fruit in our life. This is what comes to pass as a result of holding on to and walking in obedience to the truths of Scripture that we encounter. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. And the first thing, James dives right in, and he begins to talk about trials. He begins to talk about temptations, and he talks about the joys related to those. So this morning, let's begin by reading uh, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. We're going to pause there and we'll come back to that. There's nothing, as we read in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. The persecution and the hardships that the early church are facing, that we may even face today, are not new or unique to their circumstance. Throughout the Old Testament, we see those who are faithful to God, whether they be prophets, whether they be, uh, and we're going we're gonna to explore this idea today, uh, we see them persecuted. We see hardships and trials within their lives. And so we want to, the historical context of what's being discussed here, the trials and, the, and those things that are being discussed are a reference to, and we, we had talked about this last week, the persecution that the Jewish believers are experiencing, and God using that in many respects to uh, further His purpose to spread the gospel throughout the world. And we looked at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and if you'll just turn there with me, we'll read that again. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is just an example of the persecution, but it's probably the most significant example because this is Saul, who became Paul, and he says he was consenting unto his death. And this speaking of Stephen, who was martyred in chapter 7. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And he continues on uh, and discusses um, Paul's encounters with the church, how he sought to persecute them. So there's nothing new here. The, those who are faithful to God, those who are his people, are being persecuted, whether it's the nation of Israel, whether it's the prophets within that nation being persecuted by their own people, whether it's Jesus Christ himself coming and being, as we read in Isaiah 53, uh, I say Isaiah 53, and now I hesitate, maybe it's not there, but he came into his own and his own received him not. But we also find that it isn't unique just to Jewish believers. We find that the persecution of the church, the body of Christ in general, has been something that has been going on since the, the foundation, the founding of the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, obviously this is a book that is... Um, 
addressed. It's an epistle of Paul, and it's addressed to those uh, believers in Thessalonica. And while he's discussing, uh, encouraging them, uh, he talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, He says, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because you received the word of God, which you heard of us. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, with effectually, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. So we have this persecution of the church as it rises up. Here are these uh, believers in Thessalonica. They received the word of God from Paul, and, and they, he says, and you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And he says, I realize and I understand, and here we have it recorded for us, that part of their experience in coming to faith is persecution, is hardship by their fellow countrymen, other Thessalonians persecuting them for their faith. In the book of Acts, we read through and we see Paul and he comes into um, I've completely lost the place that he came into, but there was a temple and the man there, Alexander, he made the 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 idols that were part of that temple of, of Diana. And uh, I think he, Alexander the coppersmith. And so here he is. And he stirs up the people against Paul because they're leaving their idolatry, coming to faith in the true and living God and worshiping him, no longer needing his idols. And so his business is affected. So he stirs the people up against Paul. This is the historical context. This is what's being discussed here. This is the reference. This is why the, these Jewish believers have been dispersed. And there's nothing new under the sun. They're both Jews and Gentiles persecuted for their faith. And that's the context in which we pick up here. This is where James begins. Now let's talk about this word temptation. I want to talk about temptations and trials because there's two different well, the word temptation, is if you look it up in Scripture, it's going to be largely the same word translated, but the context, and it's like many English words, the context that we find it in give us indication as to how it should be understood. So here we have James talking, my brother, and count it all joy when you fall into a diverse, all kinds, different types of temptations. And if we read the following verse, verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So here we have the context giving us clear understanding that what is being discussed here in these temptations isn't an enticement to sin, but is a proving or a trying of our faith. These believers are specifically experiencing persecution, hardship, the potential for even death, and that testing of their faith, that proving of their faith, is something that God is using. But it requires context for us to have that understanding. Now turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, if you will. In Genesis chapter 22, we find 
uh, an event where, and a familiar event where someone's faith is proved, is tried in the same way that these trials are proving and testing the faith of believers. Genesis chapter 22, uh, I'm going to begin in verse 1 just to give us some context here. But it says, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt. And it's while it's different word because it's a different language, it means the same thing. God is proving, testing Abraham. And he said unto him, Abraham, take now thine son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. So God's command to Abraham is to go and to offer his son. There's a testing of his faith that is happening here. And as we come through and we understand the story, Abraham immediately begins to make preparations. He takes two of his servants, and at some point they leave them behind. God has told them where to go, to the mountain of Moriah. He and Isaac both ascend the mountain with the wood and, and with the fire and everything necessary for the, the offering except the offering. And when Isaac questions Abraham about it, Abraham's response is, God will provide the offering, which is a true answer. He has provided the offering. Here is Isaac, the son of promise, that God said, Abraham, this is, you're going to have a son, and through him will all the nations be blessed. Through him will your uh, descendants be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens, innumerable. And in a moment of lack of faith, Abraham decides, listen, we're, we're old. This isn't going to happen. And so he comes up with his own plan. And he goes into Hagar and they have Ishmael, who is not the son of promise. Yet in their old age, Abraham and Sarah conceive according to the word of God, which he had already told them. So here is Isaac, this young man who has grown up, who is here walking next to his father, and they see that there is no offering, but God will provide it, in fact, already has. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 12, after Abraham has done everything, he's gone through and he's bound his son, he's laid him on the altar, and he's about to plunge the knife in, and he's stopped by the angel of the Lord. This is what God says in verse 12. Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Now here's the thing. We have to understand that God knows everything. He's omnipotent and, and, and I'm not omniscient, rather. He knows everything. He knew what was in Abraham's heart already. But here's the thing. We're looking at this and God has recorded this because it gives us the example of faith that is being described. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. His unwavering trust in what God had said and commanded him to do and his willingness to follow through as a confirmation of that faith. That's what's being confirmed here. It's being confirmed to Abraham, who has had struggles of faith in the past and will continue to have struggles of faith throughout the book of Genesis, throughout his life. But it's also written for you and I who would come after. We look at this and we see uh, something that, that is hard to deal with. A temptation, a trial, something that we wouldn't want to experience ourselves. Yet here it is, as this example of unwavering devotion and trust in the Lord. 
And we have some insight given to us later in the book of Hebrews. If you look at Hebrews 11, chapter 19, or verse 19, we find that as Abraham is being discussed and his faith and the example of his faith, that being counted to him as righteousness, we see that Abraham trusted that God was still faithful in all the promises that he had made. Because if you're going to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren and heritage after you, it requires that your child remains alive. Yet here is God commanding him to sacrifice him. And so Abraham believes God and he still trusts. This is what God had said. He said that through the son of promise, through the son that was born in our old age, in the impossibility of our old age, all nations will be blessed. Therefore, God will have to do something to fulfill his promises. So while Abraham knew that he was going to offer his son Isaac, we read here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, says accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Listen, if I and Sarah, who are both well past the age of childbearing, are able to conceive having received Abraham in a figure, so to speak, excuse me, Isaac in a figure, in the impossibility, then God is able to raise him from the dead if necessary to fulfill his promises. And not only is God able, but he will. That was Abraham's attitude. That was his heart. That was his firm belief. I'm convinced that Abraham would have followed through. I mean, he was about to. this temptation, this trial of his faith, this proving of what was inside of him. And that's what's happening here, this proving of what was the abundance of his heart. Secondly, we have the word temptation, and it can also mean enticement to sin, as we would normally use it today. In fact, in James chapter 1, jump with me down to verses 13 through 17, because we find a different same word that used in that same in that other context. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted or enticed to sin that I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So just pause there for a moment. We have some context here, right? God's not tempting any man with evil. He's not enticing us to sin. That would be contrary to his nature. And he continues on in verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't make a mistake here. Here's the thing. As you go through and you read in, in, in commentaries and theological books and things like that, they talk about not imputing our sin to God. Now, the word impute simply means that it's counted to us. In other words, we're not counting to God the sin that we fall into because God isn't tempting us. He's not doing anything that would entice us to evil or that would entice us to break his commands or walk in disobedience or anything like that. As I said, that's contrary to his nature. And in fact, God clarifies that, or, or James clarifies that. God is, first of all, 
uh, unable to be tempted. He's not tempted as we are. There is no lust or desire or anything like that in God that is inordinate or out of place. He's completely sufficient. But what is sin, what is temptation for you and I, is when we, based on what's in us, the, the, the abundance of the heart that is within us, when we yield ourselves to that temptation, because the temptation is simply a choice put before us. I can do this or I can do that. This will lead to sin and ultimately death. This will lead to obedience to God and to his glory. Temptation is a choice put before us. It doesn't mean that we have engaged in sin by being tempted, but what it does mean is that once we take the first step down the path to lead to sin, to fulfill and satisfy the evil and sinful desires that are within us, we've engaged in sin. That's, that's when it begins. And it says, and when sin conceives, it brings, excuse me, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. That's where it goes. That's where, that's where when God says in, in Galatians chapter 6 that God is not mocked, but whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And we can sow to the flesh and reap destruction, or we can sow to the spirit and reap life everlasting. The choice is before us. Now consider the audience here, right? We want to make sure that we're not somehow promoting a gospel that's based on righteousness by the choices that we're making. This is written to believers. This is written to those who are in Christ. Their righteousness is already established through the justification of God in their life by him declaring them to be sinless because of the sacrifice, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, and their application of that blood in their life through faith. But once we enter into that relationship with God, we have, we have an opportunity to honor God in all that we do, or we have an opportunity to sow to the flesh. In Genesis chapter 3, if you'll turn there with me, Right, so, so we have creation in, in Genesis 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, we have the fall. This is where Adam and Eve are enticed by the serpent to eat the fruit, to, to do the one thing that God told them not to do. And immediately after eating that, I mean, they've sinned, their eyes are open, they realize good and evil, and and, and they realize their nakedness, and, and they cover themselves. All of that happens, and then God finds them in the garden, hiding from him. And he begins to dole out the consequence. These are the hardships that you're going to experience as a result of sin. What did sin bring forth? Ultimately, sin brought forth death. Romans chapter 5 makes a huge point about that. The death came by sin. But je- look with me at verse 12. Okay? Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. God says, uh, and I'm going to begin in verse 11. Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to me, 
she gave me of the tree and I did eat. In other words, this is, don't, don't miss what Adam said. He isn't questioning Eve's status. He's questioning the character of God. God, you gave me something good. That, that's what happened. God, it wasn't good that man should be alone. God didn't declare all of creation to be perfect until Adam wasn't alone, until there was a found to help me for him in Eve. But what he's saying is that, God, that good thing that you gave me, that enticed me to sin. In other words, God, you gave me, the you put the sin, the enticement in front of me. He's imputing his sin and the cause of his sin, the reason for his sin to God himself. We do this all the time. We don't maybe uh, realize that we're doing that, uh, but, but we're doing that all the time. I, we do it at work. We do it at home. We do, if, if only this hadn't happened, if only that person would have done their job, then I could have got my job done, so on and so forth. We're always imputing our failure somewhere else. It's human nature. Obviously, it's human nature. It was the first thing that happened. And here it is. But it's a defamation of God's character that God would give them something wrong or bad or something that would lead them to sin. It's an incorrect interpretation. It's a wrong understanding. Man was tempted based on the lusts that were within him, and he chose to walk in disobedience. He chose to disobey God. Turning to Hebrews chapter 3, there's a couple of things that we need to understand about sin quickly. Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to read verse 13 here. We're just going to pluck that verse out. We'll have to be the Berean and see if it's so. But <clears throat> Hebrews 3.13, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Two things that I want to discuss here briefly. Number one, sin is deceitful. Here is Adam and Eve, and they're being told by the serpent, here is the, here is the temptation. You won't die, but you'll be like God, understanding good and evil. That's what he told them. In other words, God is somehow withholding something from you. It's an attack on the character of God. That he would remove from you something that you should desperately have, that you should desire. It's deceit. It's falsehood. God didn't withhold anything necessary or good or right from man. And he still doesn't today. In fact, if we look in the book of James, we're not going to get there this morning, but what does it say? Just following verses 13 through 17, don't err, my, bro my beloved brother. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. So we have this idea that sin is deceitful, first of all. It, it looks good, but the end is death. Looks good, but the end is death. It's as if we're driving down a road, and there's a hill there, and the road looks nice and smooth. And as you get to the top of the hill, it just abruptly ends, and there's a giant chasm. It looks good, but what I can't see on the other side is death. But what does he also say? Exhort one another while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened 
through the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, it becomes our consistent practice. It becomes that which somehow we believe the lie, if I can phrase it that way, we, we yield to the deceit of sin. We harden our heart against God because he would withhold something from a woe is be that our creator would, which is an incorrect, incorrect assumption. That's what it leads to. And it's the opposite result of what James is talking about here. It's the opposite fruit of faith, hardness, bitterness toward God, a disdain for our creator because he has withheld from us something or some knowledge or some desire. Oftentimes, when our children are little, especially, and we know that there are things, I saw saw a picture just the other day, a meme, and this little kid, probably two, three years old, is just in tears, just beside themselves in grief, and woe is me, standing in front of the kitchen counter, and the caption is, I wouldn't let her drink the cleaners under the sink. Woe is me, you're withholding the best stuff. It's right here in this cupboard and I can't have it. But we as the parent realize that that will kill you. That is death. That is the result of sin. And God simply does that with us. As a perfect father, he says, I'm going to withhold that which is bad, which will lead to death from you. And we're hardened by the deceitfulness when we yield to that understanding that 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 false comprehension that God is somehow against us and not for us. So we have this deceitfulness of sin and the result of espousing that deceit, coming, letting it bear fruit in our heart is hardness, a distrust for God. Brings me to Ephesians chapter 4 for just a moment. We're not going to look at all of these verses necessarily, but... I want, to, uh, I want to at least read them. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, it says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth not walk as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. So just pause there for a moment. There's a difference between believers and those who are outside the church, those other Gentiles. Okay? having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, whether they're believers or unbelievers, and and there being a hardening of their heart as a result of their bitterness, or their being upset, believing the lie that God will withhold something good from them, either being past feeling of giving themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. They run towards it. But you have not so learned Christ. In Jesus Christ, as new creatures, as new creations, that's not what we have been instructed. That's not the example that is set before us. If it so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation or the way we used to conduct ourselves, our old life, the old man, he says, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Our old nature, who we were apart from Christ before we were born again, is stuck in the deceit 
of of our lust. And there it is. And that's what he's saying, the deceitful lust. It is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Because that is the abundance of the heart. The pursuit and the gratification of ourselves. Verse 21, if it so be that you've learned him and have been taught, no, excuse me, verse 23, we put off that former conversation. We, we put it off. We, we divest ourselves of it. And we be our, verse 23, we were renewed in the spirit of our minds. Then we put on the new man, which is after God, is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. You notice here, and, and as we continue on, if you look at the rest of this, there's, a, there's this distinction uh, that, that even the person who stole the thief, when is he transition from not being a thief anymore not when he just stops stealing but when he turns and goes the other way we've talked about repentance and this is a picture of repentance right he he, he talks about put away lying and we're going to speak truth it's not that we just stop lying it's that we now speak the truth and we purpose to speak the truth that we are angry yet that anger does not consume us and we're, we're not sinning in our anger. There's an enticement to sin, and there's a choice before us as believers. We can sow to the Spirit and walk in truth in this newness of life that God has given us, or we can walk according to our lusts. It's a decision we have to make. That is what is put before us. One leads to death. One leads to reward. One leads to something good. We're going to talk about that just a little bit this morning as we, as we continue. So the idea here in James, it isn't this enticement to sin that's being discussed in the first few verses. It's this trial, this temptation, this proving. And the idea here, what we have to understand is that there's this revelatory process that happens because what is coming out when we face the trial, when we face the hardship, when we face whatever is coming our way, what comes out of us? Turn with me to Luke chapter 6 for just a moment. Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. Jesus is speaking here. And as he's speaking, he's talking about... Um, not seeing the beam that's in our own eye, in our own eye, but but we're seeing the speck, the small thing in our brother's eye, uh, this uh, deflection, if you will, of examination, this deflection of honesty for where we really are. Are we sinning? Are we in sin or not? All of those things, and, and he and he enters this discussion as he's talking about hypocrites. Hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of looking and judging somebody else different than we would judge ourselves. It says, verse 43, for a good tree brings forth not corrupt fruit, neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For of thorns do men gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. 
A good man, so that's the illustration, that's the picture, and then this is the analogy that he's making. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth that which is evil. For the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What's in here is going to come out. And it comes out and it's the clearest picture of what is really inside here when we're under stress, when we're under hardship, when we are facing those temptations, those trials in our life. It's the refining process. It's what is coming out. In Job, we find Job, and he's this righteous man, if you want to turn there with me. Job is this righteous man, so much so that as the angels of God are coming before God and sort of parading, as it were, God asks Satan this question. He says, have you considered my servant Job? Have you seen the righteousness that is within in him? And Satan says, well, he wouldn't be so righteous. He wouldn't be so faithful to you if you would remove your hedge of protection, if you would stop blessing him, if you would remove from him his family, all of those things. And God grants permission to Satan to do just that. Job loses his entire fortune, and he's a wealthy man. He loses not just his fortune, but he loses his family, his children. And ultimately, I'm convinced that he probably, in the course of all of this, lost his wife, though we don't know that with certainty. Because she has a very different heart. She has a very different response to all that has happened. And I'll, ju I'll just throw this out there. Consider that Mrs. Job is experiencing the same trial, the same temptation that Job is experiencing. She's lost all of her wealth. She's lost all of her children. But in Job chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, as Job's wife, as Job is eventually loses his health, that's taken from him. And while he's there scraping the boils on his skin with, with a little piece of pottery, Job's wife says, listen, do thou still retain thine integrity? In other words, Job, do you still hold on to, do you still cling to that faith? For God, who has obviously forsaken you, and that's, that's inferred in what she's saying, He's, and she says, curse God and die. Get it over with. He's obviously left you, why don't you leave him? And Job's response is this, but he said unto her, thou speakest as one of the foolish women speak. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. His statement is this, listen, no matter what God will do, no matter what happens in my life, no matter what comes my direction, whether it's good and all the blessing that we'd experienced previously, or whether it's the loss, the hardship, and the grief that we're experiencing right now, God is still faithful. That's what he's saying. As we read through the book of Job, we would read elsewhere, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job's not wavering in his trust of the Lord, no matter what comes his way. There's two examples given to us here in James. Uh, I'm convinced they're examples. Turn with me back to James chapter 1. Let's look at verses 9 through 10, because we have possible responses for the people that are discussed in those verses. 
James chapter 1, verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. But let the rich in that he is made low because as a flower of the grass, he shall pass away. So we have two, two people here. We have one who is low, who is uh, poor, who is destitute, and he's exalted. He's provided for. God watches out for him. And it says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. In other words, he's giving thanks to God for all that he has provided on his behalf. There's, a, there's another possible response to that. And we see the nation of Israel warned against it. They said, God would tell them, listen, when you come into the land that is indeed flowing with milk and honey, when you come into that land and you live in houses that you didn't build and you live in uh, and you reap uh, crops that you haven't planted and you dig water, drink water from wells that you didn't dig, when all of that happens, he said, don't become prideful. Don't become arrogant. Don't, he says, give thanks, rejoice in all that God has provided. Don't say, look at what I have done. There's two possible responses here. And I want to just make the quick point that here we are looking at this revelatory process that happens through the trials, and it isn't just hardship that may come. The temptation, the trial, the proving of our faith may be something that God is doing that we would be all for, that we would be happy to experience, like this brother of low degree being exalted. Yet here he is being blessed by God like Job was for God's plans and purposes to bring about his glory and further his kingdom. And the trying, the proving is what is in here, what is coming out. Or we have the rich man who has everything. God has already provided those things for him, and, and he loses it. He's made low. He's brought down. Because as a flower of the grass, he shall pass away. In other words, it's here today and gone tomorrow. You think about the, the, the Great Depression and the, the amount of wealth lost overnight by hundreds of thousands of people. There was suicide. People were killing themselves because, woe is me, I've lost everything. I've got nothing left yet to live for, yet he, the abundance of their heart is coming out. They were trusting in their wealth. They were trusting in their riches that they'd amassed for themselves. And yet here is your soul required of you tonight. This is, and God would give the same, Jesus would give the same parable. Here's the farmer, right? And he goes and he has, to, he has to build bigger barns and silos for all of the bounty of his harvest. But ultimately, you don't get to take it with you. None of that lasts. And it's tonight your soul is required of you. So like this, this poor man, he has a choice before and the temptation before him, what comes out is a how he chooses is a revelation of what's in his heart. Just like the rich man who may lose everything, what comes out is a revelation of what's in his heart. This is the purpose of these trials, of these temptations that God puts in our life. To reveal what's in here. Now, whether we choose poorly or whether we choose uh, good and we bring honor to the Lord, in the midst of it, the purpose is still the same. God is going to deal with whatever comes out. The word trial used here in verse to, uh, three, the trying of your faith. It's the same word that we would use when we're talking about proving gold. When we 
heat it up and we refine it and we melt it and it goes to the bottom and all the impurities come to the top. It's the same concept. That God is in some respects allowing the, the, the heat to be turned up in our lives so that we might separate the, the impurities from that which God has declared to be pure. That he would mold us into the image of his son. The exhortation that James gives in regard to these trials, in regard to these temptations, these things that we encounter in life, is to count them all joy. In other words, we consider it a good thing. We have the, this pervasive teaching within Christianity that would say that if something bad is happening in our life, we must somehow have offended God. He is somehow judging us. And while there may be some truth in that, because God is going to deal with whatever impurity is found within us, and he may even, if necessary, per Hebrews 12, out of his love for us, correct us, and there may be some chastening that happens. While that may be true, it isn't necessarily a mark of righteousness or unrighteousness. It's a mark of God's faithfulness, and it's a mark of his love towards us. That's what Scripture calls it. We need to think about this the way Jesus would think about it. James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when we fall into these diverse temptations. When we find ourselves in the midst of those things, whatever they may be, whether it's the ups, whether it's the downs, those things that are happening, we count it all joy. That God is faithful, that God is there redeeming it, that he is using it for our best. The natural inclination, the natural response of the trials that we encounter typically is to not consider it good. We groan. But James addresses this heart and he exhorts us to consider it in the light of God's redemptive purpose. Turn me to Romans chapter 8. Familiar verses, this is one of our memory verses even, but Romans chapter 8. Verse 28, I want to start there. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God is in the process of redeeming whatever we may, whatever we may encounter. God may be bringing something our way as a result of, correction of chastisement out of his love for us. It may simply be the circumstance that we find ourselves in, the effect of sin in the world around us, but God is redeeming all of it and using it to bring about in us fruit. He continues in Romans 8.29, and he says, For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, as God is in his redemptive purpose toward you and I, bringing all things and working them for our good, the purpose is to mold us into the image of Christ. We call this sanctification. To be made holy like God is holy. To be in this transformative process throughout our lives. 1 Thessalonians would tell us this is the will of God, even your sanctification. This is something that we should rejoice over. That God wouldn't leave us where he found us, that he would do something in our hearts and minds that would 
elevate us, that would bring us up, that would make us more consistently a picture of his son, Jesus Christ. That testing is designed to form us into the image of Jesus. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4 for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 4, let's look at verse 13 through 16. We have a very similar exhortation. We have Peter writes, But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, and the word Christian literally means little Christ, representative of Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Count it all joy. Rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. That we would be counted. The, the early church rejoiced because they were counted worthy to be included in the sufferings of Christ. In Acts chapter 5, we read that very thing. They rejoiced because look at us. We're, we are suffering as a result of our faith. We, get, we are worthy to be counted into the same hardships, into the same persecutions as Jesus suffered. It is a privilege and it is an honor for us. It should be, in some respects, for you and I, a confirmation that we are representing Jesus well. We need to consider it like Jesus would think about it. As a good thing, not as a bad thing. We're told that as we endure trials, as we go through hardships, that we're going to reap fruit. He says in James chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, we count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work or the complete work in you, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. We're going to reap the benefit, the fruit of patience as a result of the trials that we find ourselves in. Now, the word patience here, we confuse patience and long-suffering in some respects. Right? I'm going to have to put up with, I'm going to have to endure this. And while that is true in, in regard to patience, what patience really means, what it means here in the original language is steadfastness. Right, so, so it has that similar idea, but what it means is that we're learning the idea that I can stand fast in God, that I can remain here and not jump over there or jump over there or somehow make myself presentable, but I can remain here no matter what's coming my way. I know that growing up, 
And I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in a Christian household. But growing up, the image that had to be portrayed by our family was directly linked to whether or not we were in God's favor. That was the understanding that I grew up with. And it's still the understanding that's promoted predominantly today. Not only outside of the church, but in the church. In other words, I shouldn't have to be steadfast. I should always, it should be easy to remain steadfast because what I find myself in, in God's favor, is only good. We're going to learn patience. We wouldn't learn it any other way. I want to give you some examples here. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, turn there with me. But let's talk about Joseph. Right? Joseph is the son of who? Jacob, that's right. He's the son of Jacob. He's, one of, he's the second to youngest son. And he's the favored son. Remember? He's the one that gets the coat of many colors and his brothers are jealous. And, and he has the dreams where he's, he's going to be exalted. He's going to be lifted up to a position of authority. And his brothers and even his dad is going to have to bow down to him. And those are given to him by the Lord. And as he articulates those to his brothers, they're not pleased. So they throw him in the pit and their purpose is to kill him. We're going to just take care of this problem right now. But one of the brothers, Judah, intercedes on his behalf and says, listen, let's just sell him. And so they sell him to these Ishmaelites. He gets taken into Egypt and he becomes a slave in Egypt. And he spends in Egypt 13 years as a slave or in prison. 13 years. And I'm basing that because if you look at Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, he's 17 when he's sold into slavery. And if you jump to Genesis chapter 41, verse 46, he's 30 years old when he comes to power. There's 13 years. 13 years he's a slave or he's in prison. And wherever he goes, he serves the Lord. Right here he is in Potiphar's house. He's bought at a slave auction. That's where he's bought. But through the process of time, and we don't know exactly how much time is there. There are those who speculate it's a year. There are those who speculate it's seven years. We don't have a definitive number of years that he was a slave. We don't have a definitive number of years that he was a uh, that he was in prison. I think it's equally split. Uh, and I have some reasons for that, but that's not important for this morning. Here he is, and he spends time in Potiphar's house, and he serves the Lord in the midst of that. And he, he's exalted to a position of second in command. And through somebody else's, through the effects of sin in somebody else's life, Joseph is cast into prison. He's falsely accused, and he's thrown into prison. And while he's in prison, he serves the Lord there, and he's exalted to his position of authority. He's basically running the prison. Over and over, as he serves the Lord, as he continues in faithfulness, here he is in all of this, operating in patience, in steadfastness. He is trusting of the Lord in all that happens in, in all of this. And as we get into Genesis chapter 50, this is at the end of, of his father's life, and his brothers are terrified now because what this is little brother Joseph that we sold into slavery. Now that dad's gone, he's certainly going to take vengeance on us. But here he is. He looks at it and he's steadfast. He stands there 
and in patience, so to speak, and that steadfastness. And this is his response in verse 20. But as for you, you thought evil against me. That's what his brothers thought. They thought evil against him. But God meant it unto good to bring it to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. So here is trial, hardship, persecution in Joseph's life. And through those 13 years, he endures hardship. But he remains steadfast. He remains unwavering in his devotion to the Lord. And ultimately, he sees it as God's plan and purpose to bring about the saving of many people. And I'll just say, in that regard, if we experience hardship, those trials in in our lives as a result of what God is doing to conform us to the image of the Lord, we're going to bring him more glory in those trials than we would have without those trials. Just as Joseph was able to do more in his trials than he would have outside of his trials. We have Abraham. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Abraham, we, we remember, I mean, he was told to offer his son. He, he, he lived um, wandering in the wilderness wherever he, his foot touched. That was going to be promised to him. That was the promised land. But he has all of these promises made to him. Yet he didn't see any of them, with the exception of the birth of his son Isaac, he didn't see any of them come to fruition. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15, and so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Here's Abraham, and he, he patiently endures. He goes through the hard things that he has to go through. He, he goes through even the mistakes that he's made, and, and Abraham wasn't always steadfast. This is something that God had to bring about in him, that he had to learn. You remember that as he comes into um, twice, and I, and I apologize, I don't remember the countries, but he comes in, and he's got this beautiful wife, Sarah, and he says, listen, tell them you're my sister and not my wife, because they'll kill me to get to you. And he does it twice. Do you remember the countries? I think Egypt was one of them, and the other one was starts with an A, the Ammon, one of those A countries. I, I don't remember, but I was thinking Egypt was one of them as well. But here he is, not walking steadfastly, not continuing in it. He had a choice. He was tempted. There was a trial there, and he chose to walk this way, not in accordance with God's will. He chose not to trust the Lord when he could have chosen to trust the Lord. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, if you will, for just a moment. And as you turn there, I'll give you another example that we don't have in our notes here, but uh, Noah. Noah, who was this preacher of righteousness for 120 years, building the ark, steadfastly continuing in what God had told him to do, though it didn't make any sense. They hadn't seen rain yet at that point in history. And, and here they are looking forward to this massive destruction and judgment for all of sin upon all of the earth. And for 120 years, he preached righteousness. He preached repentance. For 120 years, he continued steadfastly to build the ark according to the plan that God had given him, trusting that the animals were going to show up, trusting that when, when they went in, everything was as it was prepared to be, trusting that 
we're not just going to get locked in here and nothing's going to happen and we're going to die. But he did it anyway. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation works patience. Sounds very familiar to what we read in James. But he continues on here. Paul expounds on that. And patience, experience, and experience hope. And hope makes not a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now consider this, right? Here in Rome, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, we have what's called the hall of faith. We have these people over and over and over who have trusted and walked steadfastly, some better than others, some more consistently than others, but in the end, they're steadfast. And they're given as an example of those who would walk continually in their trust with the Lord. And then at the end of that chapter, as we get into chapter 12, we have this exhortation that says, therefore, because we are compassed in brow, because there are so many witnesses surrounding us of God's trustworthiness, let us lay aside the way that it so easily beset us. Let's lay aside the sin that entangles us and run with patience or steadfastness, endurance, the race that is set before us. And we have that same idea, that same concept here, that here we experience tribulations and we give thanks. We rejoice in the middle of those. We glory in them. We give thanks for what God is doing in the midst of that. Why? Because that patience, that steadfastness brings about in you and I experience. Experience of what Scripture plainly tells us, that God is, in fact, faithful. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have seen that He is going to provide everything necessary. We have seen and experienced his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. And that experience brings about in you and I hope. This trustworthiness that extends toward the future, things that we have yet to experience, things we are yet to see, but here it is, we know that God will be faithful. I would suggest that as we choose to walk through these tribulations and these trials, whatever they may be, whatever they may look like, as we submit ourselves to them in rejoicing and giving thanks to the Lord, receiving the grace necessary to endure them. That the next time and the next time and the next time probably gets easier. It's kind of like when we, when we do a task, when we do something, there was a long period of time where I was in the pursuit of cutting dovetails flawlessly. And I'll just tell you, they're not flawless. But this was something I did, and I would go out and I'd find scrap wood, and I would practice, and I would practice, and I would practice, and it got better, and it got better, and it got better. And the other thing I got better at is hiding the gaps. But, <laughs> okay, but the idea is that with continued experience, the fruit got easier, that the end product was better. And here we are with experience as we continue to operate in trust, as we move forward with that, that experience builds in us further capacity for whatever God is moving in our lives. It trains our brains and our hearts, more importantly, 
to see and to understand it in the light that God has established it in, to think soberly about it, to think about it the way Christ would think about it. Patience is the outward expression of our trust in God. And we all have opportunities to be patient, some in things that are good, some in things that are bad. I mean, I think about as I look back at, at growing up and I look at the relationship that I have with my folks and all those things and the, the, the struggles in some respects that I had with them when I was a kid. And part of that is because it wasn't, I was unwilling to acknowledge what God had created. Right here it is. God has created my parents and he's put them me in their household for whatever reasons, according to his sovereignty, his providence, to bring about in me and to redeem whatever circumstances may come as a result. And he's given them the responsibility to remove some things from me and to put me in positions and situations where I can learn to trust him and to trust them. And we practice this trust in God in some respects within the household. And I look back and I see the failures that I had because I was unwilling to trust the parents that God had given me. I was unwilling to say, okay, you probably know better than I do based on the experience or whatever it may be. It doesn't matter if there's experience there in that particular area or not, but I trust the Lord, so I'm going to do as you say. We all are put in a circumstance where we have opportunity to trust the Lord. Whether it's there in our households with our parents, whether it's in the, the jobs and the opportunities that God has put before us and, and how we provide for our families. And Lord, am I here as a result of, and the hardships that I have here, are they a result of you being engaged in my life? And am I willing to be thankful for it or am I going to come home and complain and whine about it? I mean, I'll raise my hand because I, I do that. I don't always look at it the same way that Jesus would look at it. I don't always acknowledge his sovereign hand and rejoice at the hangups and the hardships that I experience at work, what he has clearly provided and led me to. But patience, steadfastness in all of that is my outward expression of trust in God. This is what James, in many respects, this is what the book is about. The outward expression of the truths of, the God, of God's word within us. We have to understand that the fruits of the trials that we experience, not only are they patience, but no matter, they're always good. It's all good. Look at me at verse 12 in James chapter 1 as we conclude this morning. Blessed is that man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, when he has been proven, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. I just want to talk about that crown of life for just a moment. You find it in Scripture, and you don't find it a lot in the New Testament. But what we do find is that it's not associated with our salvation. This isn't a crown given unto life. What it is, it's a crown of reward. It could be translated that way. But think of it like this. It's not a reference to salvation. It's a reference to when we receive it. We receive it in eternal life. Does that make sense? 
just quickly before we move on from that, because we, we need to understand that if there's potential for misunderstanding there. Second Timothy chapter uh, four. Second Timothy chapter four, verses seven through eight, Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the, kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that also love his appearing. So here is Paul, and he's lived, he's walked with the Lord. He's been steadfast in that endurance of that race. And it says there is laid up. It's already there. But he's not going to get his hands on it. It's not going to be placed on his head until he enters into Christ's presence. And I'll just tell you this, because this is something that I remind myself of, that no matter what crown of glory I may receive, what crown of righteousness, crown of life, how interchangeable in some respects. As we get into the book of Revelation, we see the worship and the scenes that are described there. We're all laying our crowns down anyway. When you're face to face with the creator of the universe, with our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing, and, and all of our sinfulness has been removed, and here we are in our perfect state like he is. It's all we have to give. And we lay it willingly at his feet. Maybe this is discussing a reward. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Let's, let's turn there for just a moment because we have another description of reward, and it's clearly not talking about salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, how that all of our fathers... Um, it's not 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me see if it's 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, 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 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. Sorry about that. Paul says, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and other builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there's only one foundation. And he's speaking about the one common and the only way, the exclusive way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. So there's no other foundation that anyone can lay. But he says, take heed how you build on that foundation. And it's really an illustration of the way that we're going to live. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work is made manifest for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Right? It's going to be revealed. It's manifest by fire. That which is hay, wood, and stubble, those things that we would, we would yield ourselves to that are less than complementary to our profession of faith are going to be burned away. And those things that would stand and be consistent with our profession of faith, gold, silver, precious stones, are going to endure. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. 
will receive a, re a reward for it. God compensates it. It's not a, that's a terrible way. It's not compensation. It's a reward. He doesn't have to give it to us, but he chooses to. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. And I think in some respects, there, there's the idea here that that's, we, we lose the reward we would have had. That's obvious. But I think there's an, there's an understanding of the loss. But he continues on. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. So you'll go through that trying, that proving, that, that removal of the, the impurities that get burned away. And even though we may have suffered loss because we choose, like Abraham in some respects, he, he did those things which he shouldn't have done, and, and he struggled in faith, and he wasn't always steadfast in his trust with the Lord. But as he comes through on the other side, here he is the example of faith. When we get to heaven, we're going to see Abraham. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. But he suffered loss. He, he, he suffered the loss of the reward that he would have had. He would have been steadfast. It's all good. What we reap as, as a benefit for engaging in patience, that, that steadfast trust in the Lord and operating our, in our lives such that it is consistent with that understanding, it's all good. There's reward associated with it. Not only is there reward associated with it, but there is a witness associated with it. Turns me to 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let's read verses 7 through 18. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of, may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Just pause here for a moment. You see the difference here? That though we may go through hardship, though, though we may be persecuted, we're not forsaken, and we know that God is with us. Even though we may be cast down, we're not destroyed, we're not overcome. We're troubled on every side, but we're not distressed. We're perplexed. We don't know what to do, but we're not in despair. We have a different response, and the, different, the root of that response and the difference is our trust in the Lord. Is in, ultimately, is in His faithfulness, in His providence, in an understanding of His sovereignty and His purpose to redeem things for our best. He says in verse 11, for we live, we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death works in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Verse 14, knowing that he which raiseth the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all these things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many 
redound or become superfluous, be made known abundantly to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. They only exist here in this life. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Here's Paul, and he says, listen, I give thanks and I rejoice because here we are going through these hardships. We, we choose to live differently, steadfastly, trusting always in the Lord. And as a result, you see his faithfulness. And he rejoices that the Corinthian church has witnesses that they have seen it in him and those that he associates with. Because it's an example of steadfastness. This is Paul who would say, listen, do what I do as long as, because I'm doing what Christ does. We have this witness in us. When you and I, uh, we would read in Philippians, right? Do all things without murmuring and disputings, because that's our witness so that you'll be known and recognized as the sons of God. Though we go through hardship, we're not in despair. Though we go through trials and tribulations, we rejoice. Why? Because we have this hope, this joy looking forward to all that God is working in us and through us. Because we know that it works for you and I, an eternal weight of glory, this reward as we choose to walk in steadfastness and trust of who he is. Because we have the assurance that it brings about faith and, and steadfastness, unwaveringness within us. And we know that as his ambassadors, as his representatives, that helps us to be those who can serve him well. It helps us to be those witnesses in both word and in deed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. We thank you, Lord, for James and the, the practicality of all that is happening here. Lord, I rejoice at your goodness and your faithfulness, your trustworthiness. And I pray, Lord, that by your grace, we would never cease to operate in that, in that place where we think about all of the things that may come our way as Christ would think about them. I praise you, Lord, for the fruit that you bear in our lives as a result of the hardships and the, the, the tribulations, the trials that we may encounter. And we thank you, Lord, for the perspective that that distinction and, how, and our different response, our steadfastness may bring to the world around us. And Lord, we don't pray for hardships. We don't pray for those tribulations and trials, but we, Lord, Trust that in your providence and in your sovereignty, in your love and your concern for us, that, Lord, you are redeeming them for our best. You are molding us into the image of, our, of your Son. And I pray, Lord, for those who may witness the transformative power uh, of your Spirit within us as we endure those things by your grace. God, that it would be a witness to them, that it would be a confirmation, as we're about to read in chapter 2, a confirmation of the faith that we have within us. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, for all that you do.
We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, most of all, Lord. And it's in his name that we give thanks and that we rejoice. Amen.